You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 12, entitled, Transforming Social Life Through a New Understanding of Christianity, given in Dornach on February 8, 1920. It is perhaps not very well known that not only did the entire soul makeup of human beings change over the course of time, but that the things people considered necessary for social life also went through a process of transformation. I have spoken of such matters several times in previous lectures. I have, for example, pointed out that that during the Roman Empire it was not a normal societal demand for children to learn the multiplication tables. On the other hand, it was very common for every child to learn the twelve tables of law before they grew into adults. The perspective on what should constitute the common base of knowledge changed significantly over time. This is connected with the whole evolution of humanity. In order to gain perspective on the most important aspects of this connection, it is first necessary to direct our attention to the true form of the events of human evolution. Before there was a society of people, the likes of which we now know in Europe, Asia, Africa, or America, there was a broad continent in the area where the Atlantic Ocean is now. Essentially, at one time, the surface of the earth was the area of Europe between Africa on one side and America on the other, and the majority of Europe, Africa, Asia, and America was underwater. We know that this continent of Atlantis, as we call it, sank in the wake of a tremendous and significant catastrophe. We have also spoken often in the past about how a series of migrations took place away from Atlantis as it became increasingly uninhabitable toward the rising land masses that today make up Europe, Asia, and Africa. Basically, and you can read about this in my title, Outline of Esoteric Science, the first people to populate Europe, Asia, and Africa were the descendants of the inhabitants of ancient Atlantis. At that point in history, though, significant differences between the various populations began to appear, and the lasting effects of this differentiation are still present today. We can still understand these differences when we say to ourselves, there were certain portions of the Atlantean population that went to the east. We will disregard America for the moment, though it, too, was populated by some descendants of Atlantis, but for now we will disregard it. So, there were certain portions of the Atlantis population that moved east. Some of them went as far as Asia. And from these populations of people, that moved from west to east, there developed those cultures that we refer to as the ancient Indian culture, the ancient Persian culture, the Egyptian Chaldean culture, 
then later the Greco-Roman culture, and now in Europe, the fifth post-Atlantean culture in which we are currently living, which began in the middle of the 15th century. But these cultures developed in the following way. Certain portions of the migrating peoples found themselves impelled by the constitution of their bodies and souls to migrate the farthest into Asia. Others stayed back in Europe. Of course, later there was another migration, which is even spoken of in public histories, during which certain portions of the Asian population moved toward Europe again. But the population of Europe today is not solely, though it is in part, made up of the descendants of those people who migrated from Asia into Europe. Rather, the population of Europe today is also made up of the descendants of those who remained in Europe during the eastern migrations away from the continent of Atlantis. And much of what is still living today in European people can be attributed to the constitution of their bodies and souls, and its presence there can be explained by the fact that even those people who remained in Europe and did not migrate all the way from Atlantis to Asia were afflicted with the same things in their bodies and souls. In Europe we are, consequently, dealing with a convergence of the most diverse elements of different populations. The fact that a certain portion of the population went to Asia while another remained in Europe, this created a significant difference, a significant differentiation between the European and Asian populations. Those people who by the 8th, 7th and 6th millennia had already made it into Asia had evolved in such a way that they had already taken into their souls the culture of human spirituality as it could develop on the earth. Even today you can still notice in the people of Asia, which has in some respects lost its way, that they have cultivated this spiritual and intellectual element in the very being of their souls. We can say, and we are not speaking figuratively, this is the whole truth. The Eastern population, which is the most preeminent branch of the Asian peoples, has not allowed the body to take on a large role in their evolution and development. Everything that is conceived and experienced, and even to a certain extent lived in the decadence of the Asian culture, is not dependent upon the bodily characteristics of a human being. It is all extremely dependent upon the characteristics of the soul. This is why in Asia today it is not possible for the spiritual culture, which does not exist in the same way it once did, but also is not as highly valued because historical documents do not say much about it, to develop any further. It is a spiritual culture that can only be marveled at by anyone who looks into the enormous spiritual depths that the Asian people of several thousand years ago were able to plumb. The information that has been passed down through history, what can be learned from historical documents, these things do not offer a picture of what existed in Asia as a kind of primary human wisdom. 
All that can be extracted today from historical documents or the works of ancient thinkers about Chaldean astronomy, the wisdom of Indian Brahmins, the wisdom of the ancient Egyptians, all of these are later products of this wisdom. All of these things are evidence of a great, wonderful, profound insight into the spiritual world. They point to a great and profound scientific connection that people back then were able to see between the earth and the whole of the cosmos, the entire heavens above them. The people in Europe today are simply not structured in such a way that they are able to understand, even in retrospect, what was known in these ancient times. And they do not value it because they do not know how to begin to understand it. They have no possibility of directing their understanding toward these matters. But everything that was experienced through this incredible wisdom that once existed over in the East was experienced in such a way that everything these people learned spiritually they took up purely in their souls. Their bodies had little or no part in the experience. Then, as you already are aware, and you will find the details of this in my book titled Christianity is Mystical Fact, the view of Christianity that people were able to achieve emerged from everything that was taken from this incredible wisdom of the ancient East. Essentially, this view of Christianity is a direct offshoot of the ancient East. And partly through its connection with the Greeks, and partly through the transformation it underwent through the mystery of Golgotha, the ancient wisdom itself came to Europe. Now, direct your attention to something that is of particular importance. Those things which in the East were developed in the soul without the participation of any bodily organization, those traveled through southern Europe and Africa into the rest of Europe, encountering the populations of people who, with the exception of those who had migrated back to Europe from Asia, were otherwise the descendants of the people who had chosen not to go all the way to the east during the migrations away from Atlantis. And so the question arises, what was different about the constitution of those people who stayed behind that made them decide not to travel to Asia, but remain in Europe. This brings us to something of incredible significance. We have arrived at a point where we must see clearly that these people who remained behind in Europe during the eastward migrations from Atlantis experienced all that they knew both outwardly and inwardly. Every insight into the spiritual world or about the social and economic and commercial ordering of the world, they experienced all of this through the functions of their physical bodies. In the foundation of the European population lies the fundamental fact that the vast majority of Europeans primarily take up everything they experience through the structure of their physical bodies. The people who journeyed farther to the east were so constituted that they took up more within their souls because it was not naturally given to them. They neglected the development of their physical functions 
and everything that was to be taken up through the physical, directly from the world and from human organizations. In building the foundations of their culture, the Europeans made use of the physical mechanism of their brains, the physical mechanism of their whole bodies. And, consequently, we now have a very strange phenomenon before us. What developed in Asia from an incredible primary wisdom and has ultimately given us a view of Christianity has now found its way to Europe and been taken up there under entirely different circumstances and conditions than the ones under which it was developed in Asia. In Asia it was developed purely in the soul. In Europe it is taken up through the body. How is it possible that it could be taken up through the body? It could be taken up through the body because actually the bodies of Europeans evolved such that they were able to become the proper vehicles of the spiritual. The physical form, the bodies of Asians, were not structured in this way. The populations of Europe remained behind, so that in the climate and other cultural conditions of ancient Europe they could make their bodies receptive and prepared to take up experiences of knowledge, impulses of the will, and so on. In the context of the entire world structure, it is necessary to have one perspective on one thing and an entirely different perspective on some other thing. But truly everything has a place in the world and brings something good to it. Some people are not able to understand this. It is true that we make attempts to point out the detriments of materialism. But on the other hand, we must also recognize that materialism had to come into the world until the 19th century. Only now must we move beyond it. Some people in regard to such questions find it much more comfortable to say, the human body is simply the machine in which the soul resides. The soul is heavenly, the body earthly, let us abide in the realm of soul. This is a comfortable understanding of life. But this is the service that materialism has performed in the world. It has taught people that the body also participates in the spiritual realm, that among certain elements of the human races, the body was structured such that it could take up the spirit. And the most distinguished people were those impacted by Christianity. In the very beginning of the time when Christianity spread throughout Europe, the bodies of the European people were good, receptive instruments for the taking up of Christianity. Because they had been formed in a particular way by the spiritual world, the physical brains of the European people were excellent receiving instruments for Christianity. And while in Asia, Christianity entered a culture that after a centuries-long, millennia-long evolution was a culture meant only for souls in Europe, though Christianity in Asia encountered a decadent and dying culture, a soul culture well suited to ancient times, but no longer good for the age in which Christianity came into the world, this Christianity encountered receptive people who had a physical body structured such that they grew into this Christianity 
making their bodies into receiving instruments for it. For in these bodies there still lived much spirit, cosmic spirit, nature spirit. This is precisely what is significant about the first population of European people after Atlantis, that in their bodies there was spirit, and that Christianity was taken up in this spirit present in their bodies. But this spirit gradually disappeared. This spirit ceased to exist. This spirit did not remain in the bodies of Europeans. And this, at the core of the transition that occurred in the middle of the 15th century CE, that essentially the nature spirit present in the bodies of Europeans began to disappear that their bodies began to lose their ability to understand through their physicality what they had once taken up with a vigorous strength, vigorous because it was bodily, as Christianity. Consequently, a true understanding of Christianity dissipated gradually after the 15th century. Only the traditions of it remained. The relationships that lie at its core are actually misunderstood. In everyday physical science, they are misunderstood completely. It is believed that it is possible to study a human being by taking a corpse into a laboratory and anatomizing it. In doing this, one learns only the littlest bit about human beings, for the intricate structure of this human being changes almost from one century to the next. Human beings from one century are, as regards the intricate details of their physical constitution, entirely different from the human beings of previous centuries. Because this does not appear on a large scale and cannot be detected with crude scientific methods, people do not want to hear about it. But a human being is a very intricate and complex structure and something that evolves after something else in the course of time continues to exist next to what came before. In the field of crude physical anatomy there is a belief, though it is only only a belief, that if you were to take blood from a western individual and then to take blood from an eastern individual, you would be drawing the same blood. Blood is blood. But this perspective that blood is blood is totally nonsensical when seen from a true and deeper knowledge of the human being. I can explain these matters only with the aid of a schematic and can also offer to you today only the results of far-reaching research. But the results are of extreme importance. If I were to depict something in a drawing to you, understanding that if it were not a drawing but actual, it would appear somewhat differently, I would draw it something like this. If I were to draw a blood clot in the veins of a Western individual's living body, I would draw it like this, and there's a drawing. If I were to draw a blood clot in the veins of a Russian individual, I would have to draw it like this. There's another drawing. The way in which one set of these lines relates to the other set is the way in which the inner physical character of the blood in an Eastern individual relates to the blood in a Western individual. But the development of blood is connected with what I described earlier as physical receptivity. This physical, bodily receptivity, as I said, has disappeared. Today, at least for the people in Western Europe and America, the bodily offers nothing spiritual. 
the spiritual must be sought through other pathways, the pathways offered by anthroposophically oriented spiritual science. We can say, to put it bluntly, the spiritual elements taken in through the physical body, which served to provide an understanding of Christianity until the middle of the 15th century, those spiritual elements have petrified. In the Western world today, people are living in petrified bodies, and everything practiced in the West is part of a purely mechanistic culture which comes from the dead, petrified structures of the physical body. So this change is not as simple as the way in which current abstract historians depict it. Rather, it is a change that deeply affects the inner being of our human bodies. Most people close themselves off to what I have said to you just now. But just as the Romans learned the twelve tables of law, just as it was later customary to think that everyone had to learn their multiplication tables, at some point in the not-too-distant future, a future toward which we must always be working, we will have to consider such elementary concepts about human evolution a necessary part of basic education. Otherwise, every fifteen years a catastrophe will befall human evolution like the one we have experienced in the last five or six. The real cause of the confusion that has befallen us in the last five or six years is that people have closed themselves off to the new form of education that wants to enter civilized humanity. And if people want to continue living and working out of the fossilized material structure of their bodies then they will continue to concoct things that will lead every fifteen to twenty years to the kind of entanglement we experienced in Europe in 1914. There are only two possibilities before us. Either we become comfortable with the entrance into humanity of a new form of education, so that we might also allow in an influx of a new understanding of Christianity supported by spiritual science, or we face the fact that destructive elements are entering into human social life with terrible force. Our English friends will be returning to England soon, hopefully not too soon, and when they do they will probably encounter that man whom I have described as a very particular kind of representative individual of the modern age. Because in his entire life, though he is much older now, he has not developed beyond his twenty-seventh year. They will encounter the trend-setting, he is probably still a trend-setter even now, Lloyd George, that man who was able to be a trend-setter precisely because he remained developmentally active into his twenty-seventh year and then was elected to Parliament, of course, and since then ceased to be developmentally active. Even as an old man, he still thinks like a twenty-seven-year-old, which is to say immaturely you will find unusual ideas coming out of such minds. For example, up to now we have sided with the counter-revolution in Russia, but that revolution has been put down. It is no longer profitable to side with the counter-revolution, so let us try to make arrangements with the Bolshevists. Let us try to make some sort of tolerable peace with them. Today this is typical thinking for a man who stands far removed from any insight into the true laws of life one who has no idea about reality in the world. And this is how other so-called statesmen think. I notice that I always 
right statesmen in quotes these days, we must not forget about the most excellent of these statesmen, Woodrow Wilson, who far outshone the rest and whom the entire world, at a certain moment in European evolution, allowed to greatly mislead them. When it came to these matters, you truly had to be quite, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, close quote, particularly at certain moments. During the times when the whole world was bowing down before Woodrow Wilson, I always said the same thing here in Switzerland about him, the same thing that I say to you now today. Now the world is beginning to see, now that it is too late, how out of touch with reality everything is that comes from Woodrow Wilson. And people who sat with him at the Versailles conference were astounded by how little instinct about reality this man brought with him from America to Europe. The affairs in the midst of which we are currently living must be considered with a broad perspective if we are to even begin to speak about them. And you will not be able to consider them at all if you do not make it a principle in your life that a certain revelation about the human being must in the very near future enter our general practice of education, just as the multiplication table became a part of that general education at a certain point in history. Whether social demands will appear or not is a matter for discussion, just as you cannot discuss whether an earthquake will occur in a certain area or not. But what we can discuss is how we relate to these demands when they do enter the world. No one will be able to take an appropriate stance toward these occurrences without true human knowledge as it is described here. We must all fill ourselves deeply with an awareness of this. And whether the life of civilized Europe will be able to continue into the future or not will depend on whether there is a large enough number of people who can see the impossibility of an ongoing world regime that is heavily influenced by such out-of-touch individuals as Lloyd George. You all know that I am not speaking from any sort of chauvinistic perspective or from any particular side. Rather, I am speaking from a purely factual perspective, one that flows naturally out of an observation of the objective facts. I certainly have never, as a German or a so-called German, had anything against Woodrow Wilson or Lloyd George. Compared to other people living today, Lord George, Lloyd George is a good fellow. But he is also a man who has never developed beyond his twenty-seventh year as a human being. When he was not in a position to take up in himself what can really only be taken up after you reach a certain stage of development, after moving beyond the thirtieth year. Because our petrified European bodies, which do not actively work toward taking up something spiritual, lose the possibility of development when we reach our thirties. An individual can become a member of Parliament at that point, even a very accomplished, unusually good parliamentarian like Lord Lloyd George, who, as we all know, pushed through several very notable reforms once he was made a minister. It is true, is it not, that one deals with people who have opposing views by taking them out of Parliament, where they might get restless, and putting them into the ministry. At the appropriate moment they made Lloyd George a minister in England, primarily because they did not want to have him as a part of the opposition. 
but they made him a minister, and also said, Give him the department that he does not know anything about. This is the typical way to deal with dangerous parliamentarians. And see, when Lloyd George was appointed at the department about which he knew nothing, he displayed a feverish work ethic, introduced reforms that are truly noteworthy, and the others looked on in disbelief. We must be able to assess all of these occurrences with a perspective on the laws of human evolution. In general, there is nothing comfortable about judging humanity in its particularities, and it is especially unusual for people these days to be actually responsive to others around them. People prefer to simply label others and leave it at that. We are not curious enough to know through the uncomfortable process of truly meeting another person and learning whether he or she is capable of something, whether there is something in his or her soul that has the possibility of accomplishing something in the world. We do not want to get involved in the business of making assessments of people based on the true impressions that we get of them in life. We require other ways of making assessments. Here is a man who has graduated from school, one who possesses a doctoral diploma. He must be a wise man. We do not have to get to know him first. We simply need to know he took some tests, or he is, I do not know whether I should actually say he was, a counselor in the government. Excellent. Then he is already someone to be respected. We do not need to bother ourselves any more about whether he possesses any strength of soul that would allow him to accomplish something real by another means. The government appointed him a counselor with a T, rot, with a T, and not the fifth wheel, rad, of the wagon, with a D. We need to have an external assessment of an individual's potential. In the future, we will need to have instead a true and direct relationship between one human being and another. We will achieve this kind of relationship if we develop our human spiritual forces in the way spoken of here. That way comes through spiritual science. If, for example, you were to read my title Outline of Esoteric Science, you would, you could simply read what you find there. You could take up the content that appears on those pages. If you take up the content of that book in such a way that you are able to repeat everything in it from memory, then I would find it far more useful if you were to read a cookbook instead. Or, if you did not happen to be a woman, then some sort of treatise on tariff agreements. That would be more useful than reading my Outline of Esoteric Science. The true meaning of this Outline of Esoteric Science only comes through when the particular form of the thoughts therein, which annoys people enough that they have dismissed it as poorly written, when the particular manner of writing and thinking in the book works instructively on the whole constitution of your soul, when the how and not the what gives form to the soul. If you read an outline of esoteric science, it could also be another book, and allow it to affect you in this way, you will find that your inner sight actually grows much stronger, such that it eventually develops into true knowledge of the human being. Something entirely different from a simple memorization of the information in a book results when you read it in this way. Today people imagine that when you read a book, 
They have done the most important task when they have taken up the content enough to pass an exam on it. Spiritual scientific books are never intended to be read in this fashion. The most essential task has not been completed if you are simply able to list all the major points on your fingers. Rather, the truly essential task has only been completed when the things in the book have crossed over into the whole of your soul constitution, into the whole of your soul makeup, when you have used the book to develop soul forces intended for use in life itself. For decades I have been saying this in a wide variety of ways, but still in a large number of circles people consider it to be the most important thing to know. The human being is composed of this and that, we live through multiple incarnations on the earth and so on. This is not the most important thing. Rather the most important thing is that by means of this whole way of thinking I have just described, human beings grasp something that cannot be grasped by any other means. And this thing that our will comes to grips with, it must be there. If it is not, then all of the well-intentioned people who say, for example, Christianity must always be present in the world, they will achieve nothing. For just as you could never draw magnetic attraction out of an unmagnetized piece of iron, so can you never, should nothing else come into human life, get true Christianity out of what has become of Europeans. It might be able to live on in a traditional form for a time, but people will be taking up that tradition out of a place of untruthfulness. This is why it is essential that something be grasped in the human soul that will lead to a new understanding of the mystery of Golgotha and thereby to a new understanding of the whole of Christianity. In the ancient pre-Christian times, as I have indicated before, there was a widespread, magnificent, noteworthy primary wisdom. And those who marvel at this pagan wisdom are right to do so. And those who marvel at this pagan wisdom in the time when it was already beginning to resemble Christian wisdom are even more right to do so. The first Christian church fathers were actually wiser, much wiser, than their contemporary followers. Their current followers have forbidden the reading of anthroposophical texts. As you are aware, it has been forbidden for Catholics to read them by decree of the Congregation of Holy Offices in Rome since July 18, 1919. But the first Christian Church Fathers once said, What we now call Christianity has always been here, but it existed in other forms, and Heraclitus and Socrates and Plato were all, in their own way, Christians before the mystery of Golgotha. Naturally, for contemporary members of Catholic congregations, even though it comes from genuine Fathers of the Church, this statement is heretical, very heretical. But you must admit, it just goes to show you this decree of the Roman Catholic Church forbidding that Catholics read anthroposophical books is actually the proper result of the evolution of the Roman Catholic Church and therefore we must recognize that a new spiritual stream must enter the world that allows for a new understanding of Christianity.
as I said, the pre-Christian worldview is, in a certain sense, admirable. But it did not extend to certain things such as earthly nature. And in saying that, I touch upon something that is particularly important to recognize about earth evolution. In regard to everything that comprises the human as a physical being, human evolution was actually a given. Sometime in the 15th pre-Christian century, still during the time of ancient Atlantis, human beings had to a certain more or less completed extent already developed for themselves all of the details of their physical forms, which have slowly hardened to a greater or lesser degree over time. But in regard to the main portion of evolution, the evolution of human cognition, this was not the case. There, something was withheld as a great human epiphany, a knowledge of the human being disseminated through the leaders of the mystery cults until the time of the occurrence at Golgotha. What the ancient pagan sages possessed was actually a reflection of a much older wisdom, one that was still able to observe things spiritually, but it was all merely a reflection. Then the mystery of Golgotha entered the world, which is to say that nothing less than something more than earthly entered, the Christ being. Something from spheres that are necessarily more than earthly descended to earth and bound itself to a physical human body, the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Thereby something happened in earthly human evolution that had never happened in all of the preceding earth evolution. Something cosmic entered humanity. Since the 15th century before Christ, up until the time of the mystery of Golgotha, human beings had essentially been living out an inheritance from an earlier time in their soul and head beings, but with new physical bodies. Then something entered human evolution that bound heaven and earth together in a certain sense, a more than earthly being bound itself to a human body. It was still possible for the human beings who had remained the furthest behind in Europe to understand such a mystery, the ones who still had certain nature-spiritual aspects in their physical bodies. It was not possible for those who went the farthest into Asia to understand it. It was, in a manner of speaking, a gift from God for these Europeans to have bodies that, through their physical makeup, were receptive to Christianity. In the 15th century, that receptivity ceased, and therefore spiritual knowledge must now come into the world in order to give us a new understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. Unless we are able to see into this sequence of human evolution, Humanity will cease to progress and will meet its downfall because what entered earth evolution through the mystery of Golgotha will simply vanish. Unless we arrive at a spiritual understanding of the connection between earth 
and the more than earthly world, the mystery of Golgotha cannot continue to live in the world. Because this fact exists, those who would prefer to uphold the old and traditional ways, and you know how many of them there are in the world, because I have always shared with you the hateful attacks that come in from every side from time to time, have turned venomously against the truth proclaimed by spiritual science that we are dealing with a cosmic Christ being, one that is not merely earthly but rather cosmic. It is certainly peculiar, but it is nonetheless particularly bothered by the fact, excuse me, it is certainly peculiar, but it is nonetheless true that, for example, the Roman Catholic clergy and the Jesuits are particularly bothered by the fact that spiritual science speaks of a cosmic Christ. Something occurred once that has led to a division of the spirits today, and we must not close our eyes to this fact. Indeed, we must open our eyes to it. In order to participate in establishing everything that can be established for humankind down to the most specific conditions one finds oneself in, we must have, first we must have insight into the larger relationships of life. Do not say to yourself, there is not time. You will sometimes hear it said, A person has so much to do these days, so very much to do, that there is no time to glimpse spiritual truths. I would like to tally up with you the amount spent chit-chatting at five o'clock teas and snacks and afternoon teas and morning drinks and in certain areas evening drinks, there are such things, and also just in shooting the breeze and things of the sort and you will see that there is a considerable amount of time in which people would have the opportunity, if they wanted to, of familiarizing themselves with things of tremendous import to the future of human evolution. It has nothing to do with time. It has to do with people's nonchalance, with their dormancy. The disease encephalitis lethargica has begun to be physically evident in some individuals now. It has already afflicted many others in all avenues of life, in their soul life. Sleeping sickness of the soul is a very widespread epidemic. Because, in the end, what really matters is having the will to actuate one's spiritual forces. When you go to study at a university these days, with only a handful of exceptions, one could count them on two hands, you don't have to exercise your thinking. A certain mass of information, mostly about the results of experiments that have been done, is disseminated. You can simply absorb that kind of information. There is no need to engage your thinking powers to do so. But this kind of education must be replaced by something that sets thinking in motion. Something that activates all of the soul powers within people and causes zeal to replace nonchalance and dormancy in our inner soul lives. It is possible to be very active in your outer life and fast asleep in your soul. But this must cease to be in human evolution. Stopping this is an absolute and profound necessity. People today say we must have bread to eat first and foremost. Certainly this is true. 
But if we do not start thinking about encountering the structures of the spiritual world so that our bread can also be made tomorrow, then we will find ourselves only able to eat what the earth offers up, and tomorrow and the next day we will have no bread. The old systems of thought will provide us with bread for a little while yet, but the day after tomorrow, metaphorically speaking, of course, we will find ourselves with no bread if we do not drive our earthly institutions out of the directives of a new spirituality. Think about these things, for they are matters of great importance. The end of Lecture 12